Welcome to the Data Points Podcast, focused on the importance of data in the 21st century world. We discuss data-centric topics such as fundamentals of data management and use, strategies for building buy-in with organizations, the crucial role that communities play in this very important work, and so much more. My name is Rudy DeLeon Dinglas, and I'm the Data and Performance Practice Manager here at the Bloomberg Center for Government Excellence at Johns Hopkins University. At GovX, my team is responsible for leading, establishing, and improving the center's practice standards around data and performance management to help our partners in government and other sectors use data to improve resident outcomes. As a doctoral candidate, my academic research is focused on the use of and motivation around performance management programs in local government. Today, we will be talking about furthering innovation in public sector spaces through the incorporation of an intersectional practice of trauma-informed, justice-centered, social-emotional well-being in the workplace. More and more, employers are re-evaluating decades of poor workplace practices that were devoid of social, emotional, trauma-informed, and justice-based wellness. And cities are not immune to this reality. During today's episode, we will also discuss the role that data plays in building and sustaining culture change of this nature. We are joined today by Ms. Michaela Ald an instructional designer in our executive leadership program here at GovX. In this role, Michaela helps our center's goal of increasing the capacity of governments and NGOs to use data and evidence through high-impact instructional design. Thank you for joining me today, Michaela. Hello. Thank you for having me here today, Rudy. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do, Michaela. Absolutely. As you mentioned, I'm an instructional designer here at the Bloomberg Center for Government Excellence at the Johns Hopkins University. And in this role, I'm responsible for designing a blended learning experience through specialized interactions. This includes bringing in expertise from fields most accomplished practitioners, nonpartisan researchers, to support evidence-based practices in government leading to measurable impacts in the cities that participate in our programs. I am also the co-researcher and lead author of the Social Emotional Learning Handbook, Practical Applications for Trauma-Informed and Anti-Racist Social Emotional Learning in Educational and Communal Settings. This is the research we'll be driving our conversation from today. Now, I understand that you're also focusing on this as a PhD student. Yes, this ties into the studies um, that I'm focused on, the role of holistic wellness in culture, communities, and curriculum. Wonderful. Michaela, I think we should start by addressing social-emotional learning. Isn't that something that is normally seen in school for students? Absolutely. I think this is a great first question. So social-emotional well-being or social-emotional development here in the United States has been packaged as social-emotional learning over the last 20 to 25 years. And it's been marketed to our schools, primarily pre-K through 12, as additional development curriculum for youth. And it's been really targeted that way. However, social-emotional well-being addresses one's ability to understand and manage emotions, to form social connections and relationships in the real world. So when we look at it through that lens, what we're talking about is something that impacts the holistic life cycle of a human being their entire time that they're here. So that is what we're really pulling from and trying to pull away from that idea of what social-emotional learning is in the school day. With that 
understanding, I want to work us through kind of a scenario to help ground us in what we're talking about today so that we can work through some of these things as we discuss. So I want us to think about a situation that we're trying to handle. It's stressful. It's at work, either by ourselves or with some colleagues. And it's not going as planned. It's not going the way we need it to, or it's actively getting harder to navigate. I want us to think about three key questions. Do we always feel in control of how we handle this situation? Do we have the emotional bandwidth to understand the other side of the situation? And do we have our responses coming from places of hurt, anger, or fear? I think we can all sit and come back to some situation where we would answer yes for any one of those questions. And while we're all responsible for building skills to change these reactions, to make it so that we are feeling better informed and better able to navigate these spaces, a large piece of the conversation that is missing and is very crucial in this conversation that I really want us to dig through today is the role that organizational culture and practices play in these situations. I also want to mention that throughout our conversation today, as you had mentioned, this intersectionality component, we're not just talking about social emotional well being and social emotional well being alone. That is only one component. In order to really dig deeper and instill all aspects of this change, we're looking at the importance of an intersecting relationship between trauma informed care, justice center practices, and social emotional well being. So you just mentioned two new phrases there, two new words, Michaela, uh, trauma-informed care and justice-centered practices. Can you share with our audience what you mean by these two terms? Yeah, absolutely. I can start by providing like some textbook definitions to get us on the same page and then what those kind of look like or how they transpire in the real world. So trauma-informed care is an approach in the human service field that assumes that an individual is more than likely to have a history of trauma And that trauma-informed care recognizes the presence of trauma symptoms and acknowledges the role that this plays in an individual's life. So there's no one single type of trauma, and there's no one way of addressing an individual's healing journey through that trauma. Some types of traumas include communal, systemic, historical, personal, relational. All of these things are things that we carry with us every day as we move through the world and also as we come into work as employees and as humans. So one type of trauma that might be helpful as an example as we think about this that impacts a lot of employees is intergenerational trauma. This is trauma that has happened to a singular person and then been passed down to subsequent generations of that person. And this kind of trauma is really key when we're talking about workplace well-being because it's oftentimes perpetuated here in the U.S. anyways by social systems that include imperialism, colonialism, racism, capitalism, so on and so forth. What is unique about this is that those are the same systems that are foundational to many of our organizational workplace practices here in the U.S. So it's both perpetuating trauma and perpetuating how we do our work. Okay, so Michaela, after the last few years, all of us have been working through the societal trauma that we collectively experience, right? As well as many of these other very traumatic, very individualized experiences that you listed out. That's a lot to handle, especially for people working in a service-focused industry like local governments. I mean, even more traumatic for individuals from Black, Brown, Indigenous, immigrant, LGBTQIA, and other disabled communities, as well as women who experienced a great deal of oppression, right? 
That's absolutely right, Rudy. And what you just listed is the reason why that justice-centered practice is so crucial in this trio of theories, because these things are all interconnected. They're all chains, and they don't happen independently. So what you're talking about when we're looking at justice-centered practices, for example, an anti-racist practice, is that we're talking about how do we contextualize social-emotional well-being, trauma, informed practices with the understanding that for each city, each community, each workspace, there's conflicts between racism and white supremacy. And each workplace and organization finds itself in its own unique sociopolitical and racial context there. And so this work needs to be built from a responsive and reflective space to whatever reality that might be for that individual environment. Okay, so with this foundational knowledge, with this understanding uh, that we're beginning to have here, why does this matter now, Michaela? I think that's a really good question that we're asking ourselves as we continue to go through this research. What we know at this point, last numbers were that for U.S. employees, we'll spend about 9,000 hours of our lifetime at work. And as you previously mentioned, the reality that we are finding ourselves in right now both living and working, is dramatically different than what our plans had been for 2022-2023 prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. We're looking at the stress, anxiety, trauma, all impacted by the mass loss of jobs, housing, life, and stability. And what is really crucial here and what the research keeps coming back to and what I really want us to walk away from today is that we know that we're not just tired, we're in pain. And yet we at staff, we as employees are continuing to show up to work in this pain. And more and more ourselves and our colleagues are seeing that we're no longer willing to work for just a paycheck alone. There needs to be another reason. And as a result, many employers are now being required to reevaluate decades of poor workplace practices to begin to critically evaluate an organization's ecosystem that is more responsive, inclusive, equitable, fair, just, or based in individual well-being. Thank you for that, Michaela. Um, Can you share with us more on why this is particularly important in the public sector, in local governments? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really great question because public sector entities provide a really unique insight into this conversation because you're talking about a group of individuals, at least here in the U.S. again, nine times out of 10, they are working, living, playing, shopping, eating, worshiping, all in the same geographical community, all in the same city. And so you're looking at employees that are just incubated in this one space. So an investment in culture built on the intersection of these three practices stands to benefit not just the city as an organization, as an entity, but imagine the ripple effect that that benefit can have on the larger community within the city, outside of city hall walls. So my argument or our argument from the research is that by focusing first on the organization as a whole, as an entity, 
we then would be better able to do this work with our communities, with our residents, with our customers, because the organizational inequities and those trauma-sensitive practices have already taken place at a systems and a procedure level. So in doing so, when cities instill these beliefs in the organizational culture and invest in staff that way, our staff are more productive. They're better able to fight for the well-being of our communities every day, which is what we know that folks are signing up to do anyways, and we're allowing them to do their job even better. So it sounds like you're touching here in the realm of managing for employee retention, which is always a key focus that we hear and oftentimes a challenge for cities. Work cultures that see its workforce as actual humans with valid needs and lived experiences retain and attract employees better in the long run. Absolutely. And that's something that those of us that have worked in public sectors or those that have worked in cities have known for a long time. This is not necessarily unique to a pandemic world for these sectors. This has been a concern for a long time, losing employees to the public um, to the private sector, excuse me. So This is something that there has been a need for and a documented need for for a very long time. So I guess my next question for you and what our audience will be asking is, how do public service organizations go about doing this, addressing this need? That's a really great question. I think that I want to start with this understanding that how we choose to do this in any one organization or city is going to look different and it needs to look different because there's an element of responsiveness to each community that needs to be baked in. With that having been said, there are four key components that need to transpire no matter what approach we take to this. And those four kind of happen in a sequential order. First, We need to develop an understanding of the tenets of social-emotional development. We need to know how this impacts each individual because it's going to be unique with each human experience. This looks at setting common definitions, finding commonalities and social and emotional priorities, both inside and outside of work. Once we've done that, we're looking at developing an understanding of justice-centered or anti-racist and trauma-informed practices to further the individual and collective development that has been started in that first tenant. And this includes fostering both structured and unstructured spaces for these conversations. Not all of these should just be happening through workplace groups that have been set up by HR. These need to be also very informal and off the cuff. And I think that's a really important key um, aspect because GovX has been pushing for this in the work that we do with all of our cities and our programs is that before we can know what it is that we are trying to do, before we can put action items in place or what have you, we need to have this shared understanding and shared definitions first, and then action comes after that. After that, it is important to begin reflecting on power and privilege to further both self and social awareness. So organizational-wide conversations here are necessary to address the social and workplace power, equity, and privilege that exist. This is looking at positions, hierarchies. This is looking at existing identities and awareness of biases, as well as looking at existing systems and procedures within the organization. So all of those levels. 
only after these first three exploratory based items are met, then can we look at undoing organizational practices that need to be incorporating and a component of equity and well-being. So organizations need to review policies and procedures in the area of performance management, program and service delivery, HR, data governance, IT, and so much more to understand and recognize all of these things as an entire workspace. All right, so I bring myself to this conversation with the performance management hat on, right? So it's sounding like performance management indicators would then need to be adapted based on the revision of these practices that you just mentioned? Yes, absolutely. That is a very key component that would come after all of those conversations and after some of that exploration, you would need to get things actionable and build out systems of accountability. So what are cities already doing now that you can list out for our audience here that this investment would further improve or support? Absolutely. I think there's a lot of things. Um, But I know as a podcast titled Data Points, a lot of our listeners are coming to this conversation with that lens. And I think this is a really great place to sit in that conversation. And so I want to call back to a conversation that cities that are working with us through any number of programs here at GovX are experiencing with us hand in hand right now, and that's building disaggregated data practices. Data has become associated with hard numbers. And while in a lot of cases that's very true, whether data are qualitative or quantitative, they all come from humans. And sometimes we forget that. I think so too. So what you're saying is when organizations think of data, that it's necessary to contextualize data around identities as a first step. And through this, develop equitable responses about the data collection and data analysis process. Did I get that right? Absolutely. And I think there are a few examples that can help highlight this. One thing to think about is assessing data collection measures, putting ourselves back in the shoes of an individual who's received a survey, who's received some sort of communication or feedback form. If we're asked to answer a question rating something like on a scale of one to three, and we mark a two because we're like, well, it wasn't perfect, but it wasn't terrible. We know that we're experiencing this dissonance of like, I really wish I could tell you why I'm giving you a two on this. And that also impacts our work when we're reviewing the data that we've received and we see a number of twos on this report, we don't know what that means. We know it wasn't perfect, but we know it wasn't awful, but we don't know why. And so that is a really key component of this is getting in and having those conversations with whoever we're looking to have, you know, respond to these surveys or collect data from. That human experience is really crucial here. So while we know that multiple choice answers have the highest response rates when you give out surveys, you and the research are saying that it's necessary to have formal and informal conversations on this topic? Yes, relationship building is necessary to collecting comprehensive and disaggregated data. This is key and a number of organizations are showing this right now. So it's very important that in order to make equitable and responsive decisions, we invest in that type of collection measure. Another thing to think about with collection and analysis tools, another example, would be trauma-sensitive language. So language devoid of penalty, shame, blame, or expectations. These are very easy things to think through when we put our mind to like 
hmm, is this a deficit-based question? Or hmm, is this going to have the respondent feel some type of way about whether or not they answered a question one way or another? It requires us to be a little bit more thoughtful, but it's a very easy thing that all of us can do. We all know that biased language often serves the white middle-class norm. So finding language that avoids absolutes and offers choices of each individual identity is unique is very key in this work. Absolutely. The idea of debiasing language and making language trauma-sensitive go hand-in-hand. One other thing that I think might be a helpful example, when we're looking at analyzing data, responses can and need to be broken down by demographic data. It is imperative that we are collecting that information up front so that we can look at how things need to respond to a number of different demographic groups. So we're looking at how do we disaggregate data by race, ethnicity, disability, income, veteran status, age, or any other demographic variable. I mean, often organizations have taken the approach, right, of not collecting this information to seem a little bit more inclusive. But by excluding this data, this this aggregated data, organizations continue to silence historically marginalized and excluded communities. Absolutely. I think that there might be two examples that I can share here that come to mind to help paint this picture. And I know that those of us that work in these fields have a number of things that come to mind. But two things that might be helpful to think about. One, if we're collecting like feedback information through an HR survey, something around time systems, looking at how our staff are feeling about a certain set of holidays or what have you. By disaggregating this set of information by groups that are parents or care providers versus groups that are not, we can see how one group might need to have a more flexible time schedule. And then we can build in the systems to allow that for that group. That's not to the detriment or the disadvantage of the individuals that don't need those supports, but we know that each group or each individual needs differentiated levels of support. And so by having that information, we can be more responsive. The other piece of that that I think more and more organizations are starting to grapple with over the last few years is the idea of our holiday schedule. As an individual, myself, that does not fit into our historically normalized holiday schedule that tends to be a little bit more Christian-based when it comes to some of our cultural holidays, it can be really helpful when I have an employer that allows me to use my holiday pay when I need to in response to my cultural needs. And so that is something that is missing when we don't account for disaggregated data. There's a lot to unpack in these considerations that you're offering, Michaela. And you're absolutely right. At this time, more and more cities, like you've said, are seeing the need to invest in equitable data collection and its aggregated data practices. It sounds like that building workplace culture from this intersection of social, emotional, trauma-informed, and justice-based wellness practices would make these priorities fully informed and responsive. Not to mention sustainable, right? Because they will match the performance management measures in place for an organization that has revised its policies and practices through these lenses. Absolutely. And I think that piece of sustainability is really important and probably something we'll come back to as we continue this conversation. Oh, definitely. But who would you say in the cities now are key in leading this type of work forward? That's a really interesting question. And I think 
my answer might be a little counterintuitive. We're not looking for HR departments here. We're not looking for organizational champions. We are looking for an anyone, anybody who is resonating with this material to just start implementing these pieces in their daily practices, to start asking some of these questions, to start challenging some of the norms. While we understand and know that change of this magnitude has to have, you know, an HR director that's bought in. If we're talking about public sector employees or cities in particular, we know that a mayor has to be invested in this. However, if our staff are not universally invested, if our staff are not seeing a reason for this to happen because they see the direct impact themselves, this is not going to change. We're not going to see the outcomes that a city might be looking for if we assign this in a more prescriptive manner. So we're looking at something that is both grassroots and top-down and looking at something that finds a little bit more of a unique and responsive relationship between those that are employed by the organization and those that are leading the organization. So it's really a both and here. And again, I really want to call out, we're looking at how this impacts all areas of an organization. So for a city, we're looking at performance management, like you've mentioned, program and service delivery, HR, data governance, finance, IT, community engagement, park and rec, communications, and whatever other departments exist. Because that is the only way this will be sustainable. One person leading a charge is not enough. So what you're saying is, Michaela, this is hard and years-long type of work that requires human and time investment, but that the rewards are sustainable, employee-led, and transferable to the community when done this way. Is that it? Exactly. Absolutely. And that sustainability piece is really big in what should be driving us forward. We're looking at this to be organization-led. So knowing that this is a marathon type of work, how can people stay motivated, Michaela? We talked about how now, more than ever, and more than any time in my lifetime, things feel hard to push through. How do you get folks to stay motivated? Absolutely. I think that question hits at the reason why we started this research. All of these things that I'm saying right now, they're very human-based. They're very much what speaks to me, what speaks to you on an individual level. And so I think the biggest thing here is we know that this is organizationally heavy, procedure-heavy, systems-heavy. How do I invest in myself to do this as a staff member, as a leader, as a human? How do I ensure that I have what I need to continue to do this? The big answer here is building self-care, self-awareness, and well-being. So the research continues to come back to there is this idea that sometimes gets missed in bureaucracies of humans are not just employees. Humans are humans and we're humans first. So when we're looking at how we stay motivated, we're looking at how do we take care of ourselves? How do we prioritize ourselves when I've done this hard work from nine to five? But that's not the end of it because I'm living and breathing as a human who's in need of these things from all the organizations I interact with. So the really big thing here is learning to listen to one's body, checking in regularly throughout the day to understand what is going on within ourselves and really looking at that mind-body connection. And I think that this takes us out of that systems work a little bit, 
But it is crucial to remind us as to why we need to do this. If we're not checking in with ourselves and we're just busy focused on, I need to get this system updated so that it can be compliant and it can hit this performance measure based on this updated theory or culture, we really lose the focus as to why we started doing this in the first place. So a few questions that I think are really important to ask ourselves as we move throughout the day. This is something that can happen while we're making breakfast, in the car, sitting at your desk, watching TV. Questions that I'm asking myself right now is, how do I feel in my stomach, in my joints, in my jaw, in my forehead? So right now, I'm aware of the fact that my heart rate is a little bit faster than normal. I am aware of the fact that my brain is really trying to make sure that I'm pushing through this in a way that relays my intention around trying to make sure that we're passionate about making this enjoyable for the audience as they're listening. And all of those things are going on in my body as I'm doing this. And not all of those things are bad. So many of those things are great and wonderful and amazing. But when I come out of this conversation with you, Rudy, I'm going to know that I'm going to need to resettle myself. And so that's the piece of this work that we're really hitting on here, I think, in this question. What do I do? What skills, resources, tools do I have when I'm experiencing physical signs of stress and anxiety? Speaking again for myself, some of my favorite things are going for a walk. I love to cook and I love to spend time on the phone with my family. Other things that can be really helpful are spending time with a pet, taking a bath, reading a book, watching a movie or TV, going out to dinner with friends. But what is important here is that we all know the things that make us tick and the things that bring us joy. Because if we're trying to do this without joy and understanding of ourselves, we're not actually going to make any change. So the two words that I walk away from this is human-based, right, Michaela? What's most important here is that staff members, staff like myself, that we don't forget about ourselves and our needs and to take those breaks, to incorporate those self-care tools that work for me and work for others, right? So that we can come back to this work refreshed and renewed. Are there any other pieces that cities should be thinking about as they invest in this type of work? I really think that is the big piece. The thing that I want people to walk away from this conversation with is that anyone can start this work. For our cities, we know our mayors need to be bought in and leading this effort. And for folks that are non-city employees that are listening to this, your organizations, the highest level of your leadership need to be invested. We know this. But anyone, anyone can be the one to start. Anyone can be the one to go into work tomorrow and start revising their work to be more trauma-informed, to be more just. Any department head can start advocating for their policies and procedures to be revised, to be more aware of any oppression or social exclusion within them. So if any of this resonates with you, take a moment to identify one thing that you have control over that you can change. Depending on your role in an organization, this could be as comprehensive as starting a new social well-being group. This could be revising service delivery practices. This could be as narrow-focused and pointed as really looking at how your one department analyzes data. Or it could be looking at how you show up with more grace and empathy for yourself and others in your workspace. Again, there's this idea that sometimes I think in our society is 
opposing, but really they go hand in hand. This is very systems and procedures heavy work. And we know that. And so much of the research focuses on the need to revise all of those things. But the other piece is, is we're revising all of those things for ourselves, for our best human interests to be better for us as humans. So when you ask what is like the one thing I want cities or individuals listening to this to take away is that no matter the position or power in the organization that you have, we all have power in our own lives and our voices matter. And so imagine as a city employee or a public sector employee, the impact that this can have on our communities and residents or customers. If we all believed that our voices mattered and we brought that into the workplace with us tomorrow to create these changes, to lead the changes that we know that our communities needs because we live here, because we work here, because our friends are here. This is hard, like you said, and I'm not going to say it's not. And we know this, Rudy, right now, this is a lot of stuff that GovX is currently going through too. But isn't it worth it for ourselves? And calling back to your first question, for the next generation, for our youth. Got it, Michaela. Thank you. Because when employees have their needs met, they're able to meet and advocate for the needs of the city's communities, as you said, right? The department staff are able to reevaluate their service delivery models, as you mentioned, policies and systems, data collections, and all of those methods are informed um, and they're more responsive to the communities when they're refreshed and invigorated and not tied down with stress, right? So we really appreciate you sharing this research with us, Michaela. Within the work that we both do here at GovX, it's very clear that this information is being sought after by cities across, not just the U.S., but beyond our borders, right? That many city leaders are now ready more than ever to have these types of conversations. Absolutely. One thing that comes to mind, the executive director of our sister center, the Bloomberg Center for Public Innovation, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you would have heard her say that now more than ever, our residents are aware of who our city leaders are. And I think that that rings really true. And as a city employee, as a public sector employee, we know that this is the truth. And we're all driven to do what we know to be best for our cities. And this is just a response to that. This was us going out, trying to figure out how we can tackle some of these things, how we can address some of these things. And this research just speaks to the fact that when we look intersectionally at these three theories, we find a base from which our humans are recentered inside of our organizations. And so, I'm really excited to continue these conversations here at GovX and with our cities. And I am so grateful for the opportunity to be here and share the work that we've done. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mikhail. And I understand that this is also a topic that you'll be publishing a multi-part blog post, right? That will go in depth for this. So we're looking forward to that. Thank you for joining us today, Mikhail. And if you'd like to learn more, you can find us at govx.jhu.edu. Until next time, 